Uh, please keep your Bibles right where they are. Daniel three thirteen through 18 will be our text for this morning. Sound like a broken record, huh? Every week I kind of say the same thing, but I like having this the scripture that we're going to look at read beforehand. Two Sundays ago, we looked at how Nebuchadnezzar built a 50 or 90, actually not 50, 90 foot tall golden statue and demanded that his government officials, his employees come to the plain of Dura and bow down and worship it. Last Sunday, we looked at how the priests of Bel uh, Merodach, the certain Chaldeans, how they informed the king of three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, that they were disobeying the king's order and not bowing and worshiping. They remained standing while, I don't know how many people, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, were, were bowing and worshiping. They went to the king and said, hey, these guys aren't doing it. That's kind of where we left off. Um, and now we're going to look at what took place next. We're going to look at basically the king's response and how he responded to the certain Chaldeans' words and information. But I think it'd be uh, befitting to, uh, to pray before we uh, spend time in God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your goodness. We thank you for corporate worship and the scriptures which are your word to us. We humbly ask for your help this morning, Lord. Help us to to listen to your word. Help us to comprehend your word. Help us to apply your word. Help us to live out your word for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, let's pick it up at verse 13, family. Verse 13, chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 13. Look at it with me. This is where the narrative picks back up. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar's response was all the Chaldeans could have hoped for, right? They were maliciously kind of uh, maligning and, and talking about these Jews that were very jealous of them, and they really wanted the king to, to get angry, to become enraged, and to do this very thing. So they, they were thrilled that the king was really, really ticked off and called for them. He literally became furious and, and ordered that, okay, bring these men before me. They were, they were thrilled. The Chaldeans were thrilled about this. And this is the second time that we have seen Nebuchadnezzar become furious in the book of Daniel. Uh, the first occurrence was in chapter 2, verse 12, when the wise men, his own employees, the wise men of Babylon failed to describe the king's mysterious dream. You know, if you just shuffle back a chapter, you'll, you'll see him. He just was furious at that point, too. And so what we're seeing here is a pattern with this particular guy. Nebuchadnezzar was prone 
to anger. He was prone to fits of rage. Uh, we would call him a hothead. Maybe you're familiar with that term. I'm kind of reminded of, of multiple scriptures were kind of exploding in my mind as I was reading and studying this, and one of them was Proverbs 14, 29, which says, he, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts, lifts up folly. Uh, what this particular person is saying is that hot-headed people, those who get angry exhibit all sorts of folly, and folly is usually just means foolishness. And this is so true, right? Uh, hot-headed people do engage in a plethora of foolish activity. Uh, firstly, they say things they later regret, right? In the fit, you know, in the, in the midst of that rage and anger, they, you, you realize what you said, you know, like, oh, no. You know, they say things they later regret. They make hasty and irrational decisions that cost them in the long run, right? So they say things that, you know, they later regret. Hopefully they later regret. They do things that later on they say, oh, man, that was just not wise. I should have stopped and backed off and, and chilled out a little bit. Should have piped down. Hot-headed people tend to hurt uh, those around them and destroy their relationships. And some even resort to violence, right? So it's not just that they, they go off verbally on people or make poor decisions when they're angry. Sometimes the poor decision is, is violence. It's an attack. Um, now, I used to be all of the above, but uh, God has sort of quenched that person in me, although I'll tell you that whenever I'm working on something that requires some sort of mechanical skill and it's not going in the direction that I want it to, I, I, do, I do resort to violence on the object, you know, and my wife's like, I'm sure it's going to work better now that you've beat the tar out of it, right? Things usually do work better. I don't know what it is about it. Maybe I shook what was loose back into place. Uh, but for the most part, I, I was all of the above, and, uh, and that, that, that's few and far between now. But sadly, hot-headed people, uh, that they're hot-headed to begin with, but that they exhibit all of these kinds of foolishness and even violence, and that's what we see with Nebuchadnezzar in a sense. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two addresses the idea of anger leading to violence. It says, an angry person starts fights. A hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. There is an enormous amount of wisdom packed into that little verse. It is so true. Nebuchadnezzar was literally all of the above. I mean, he was just a hothead. He, was a, he, he would get angry at the drop of a, you know, a hat and and go right to the most extreme kind of consequences. You know, he was just a, a super hothead. And uh, I was just struck by the irony here with him. There's a degree of irony here in the text. The great king of Babylon. This is like the greatest king to date. This is like the greatest 
king of his era, his time. This guy was insanely bad. Awesome. Just the wealth, the power, the prestige. Had it all. This great king of Babylon who conquered and enslaved tens of thousands was indeed a slave himself. He was a slave to his own brutish passions and self-glory. When his subjects challenged him, he became a slave to anger. Anger controlled him. In some ways, you could define slavery as just being controlled by something. You see the irony? The great king who subdued nations was himself a slave to his own brutal passions, to his own self-glory, to his own self-image. Why do you think he put up that 90-foot-tall statue? Do you think it was really about his gods like he keeps claiming in here, or was it about him? That golden image that was standing on the plain of Dura, probably on the, uh, the mount of the Tower of Babel, in that same area, it just represented his own slavery, enslaved to himself. And I'll tell you, friends, that is the worst kind of slavery. And I thought, what a moron. How pitiful. And the truth is, we are all like Nebuchadnezzar, aren't we? We are all slaves. The question is, to whom or to what are we enslaved to? Are you a slave to lustful passions and worldly desires? Are you a slave to worry and to anxiety? Are you a slave to fear? I'm no longer! Are you a slave to pessimism and negativity? Amen! Are you a slave to an insatiable, unquenchable desire for more discontentment? Does that not run through our DNA? You move from one thing to the next, never satisfied? This is why men have gun collections. As soon as they buy one, they're looking at more, and the wife's like, you just bought a gun. I know. Guilty. Are you a slave to others? A people pleaser? Always vying for their attention and for their favor and for their acceptance? We are all slaves to something or to someone. Bare minimum, we are slaves to ourselves. And yet as Christians, we are called and commanded to have one master, only one, the Lord Jesus. He alone is our kyrios, that means master, and we are his doulos, slaves. 
when we find ourselves falling under the spell, power, and rule of something or someone other than Jesus, we need to flee to our Deliverer for help. We go to Christ. In Romans 7.24, the Apostle Paul was so frustrated with his own flesh that he cried, Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Every true believer has felt like that before. Amen? Every true believer has said to themselves, Ah, I just can't seem... I, just, I keep going back, Lord. I can't, I, I can't do this. I can't... Right? You just the struggle with the flesh. It's constant. It's consistent. We get so frustrated, frustrated with ourselves at times and, and with the things that we shouldn't be doing and the things that we know we're to do and then we don't do those things. And It's just a never-ending battle and fight. And I'm just astonished that the Apostle Paul actually said that about himself when we hold him in such high regard. Well, he's second to Jesus. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He was so tired of going back and forth. He just wanted to serve the Lord. And yet he found himself serving his own flesh at times, just as we do. Well, the good news is is that Paul went on to answer his own question in verse 25 of Romans 7. Who delivers us from these bodies of death? He wrote, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the Lord Jesus who delivers us from these bodies of death, right? And yet full deliverance will not come until we either go to be with the Lord or He comes to gather us to Himself. In the meantime, we must learn to submit to Jesus alone as Lord and Master and flee to Him for help when our flesh and the devil work to enslave us. Amen? So, Nebuchadnezzar's officials went to retrieve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This guy was just such a slave to himself, and yet here he's ready to put it on these guys who won't comply. Now let's look at what happened next as they came and stood before the king. Look at 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? The king simply questioned them to see if there was any validity to the Chaldeans' charge. He wasn't about to throw three important government officials into a fiery furnace without first interrogating them, without interviewing them. Now, he was wrathful and filled with rage and anger and these sorts of things, but there's a tiny bit of rational mind there, just a shred of it, because sometimes people get so angry they lose all rational mindset and just go off, and he's just, i got to make sure. wasn't going to just toss him in. He, he needed to know. Maybe he 
understood some things about the certain Chaldeans, right? That they tended to be whiners and crybabies and they were always, the, you know, those types that are trying to get people in trouble. Who knows? And so he has them come and he questions them. Verse 14, however, is a bit perplexing. It's a little challenging. Nebuchadnezzar knew what these men were about. He already knew who they were. He, he appointed them. It's been 20 years. He knew what they were about. He knew that they were monotheists. That they worshipped one God. The God of the Jews. The God of heaven. Yahweh. He knew this about them. They had witnessed to their God, right? This singular God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of heaven. They had even witnessed before the king to their God. Chapter 2, verse 36. As I said, they served in Nebuchadnezzar's administration for two decades, and never once did they worship any of his gods. So why did he ask this question? Did he forget about their beliefs? Did he forget about their religion? No. No. I suspect he may have granted men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego certain privileges. They could serve in his administration and continue in their religion as long as it didn't cause them any trouble. He might have made accommodations for them. So, I mean, 20 years and you're worshiping your God and not worshiping his God, you're going to pick up on that at some point. This probably wasn't the first time he wanted people to kind of bow to him or do those sorts of things, right? It's two decades. The golden statue, the golden image, however, represents a turning point in Nebuchadnezzar's thinking. As his kingdom expanded and grew and became more and more powerful and more and more glorious, his pride and paranoia also grew, also expanded. The dedication service that we're studying here in chapter 3 had to do with bringing religious freedom to an end. It had to do with uniting everyone in Babylon, first his officials uniting all of his officials and then everyone else under the king's gods, under the king's religion, under the king's throne, in a sense. So what we're seeing here is a turning point. He may have allowed some religious freedom. Just don't let it ooze over and cause me trouble. And then he puts this statue up and says, it's over you're not going to worship your God or gods any longer. You are to worship my astral deities and me as their representative. When Antichrist appears, he will do the same thing. He will outlaw religion, all of it. And he will murder those who do not bow and worship the image he sets up. You know, when you see certain leaders throughout the world try to stamp out Christianity, 
That's a sign of the times, man, of what's coming. North Korea, wherever, the Sudan, all throughout the Middle East. Are we such fools to think that it's not happening here in our own nation, at least through legislation, maybe not through force yet? The entire world is becoming more and more anti-Christ, which I think paves the way to his appearance where it'll all be heightened and magnified. Nebuchadnezzar is a foreshadow of this future person. In an effort to avoid further embarrassment, because let's not pretend that when you have this entire congregation of all of these people bowing and worshiping and you have some guys that aren't, let's not pretend that there wasn't some embarrassment here for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Those guys are my officials. They're supposed to be bowing with everyone else. How embarrassing for him, right? In an effort to avoid further embarrassment, Nebuchadnezzar calls a mulligan. If you've ever played golf, I have to call a lot of them. And he gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego another shot at this. Mulligan, all right, redo. Let's get the band ready. I'm going to give you another chance. Look at 15. And he's speaking to them. Is it true that you've done this? All right, well, here's the deal. Now, if you are ready, if you're ready to do this, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Do it then. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And here is the kicker, man. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Whew. Now, verse 15 is rather large, and it's really divided into two parts. The first part deals with procedure, right? Bowing and worshiping the golden image at the sound of music. That's the first part. The second part deals with punishment being thrown into the fiery furnace for not complying. Now, we've been over both of those things a few times. We've talked about them because we've seen them in previous passages. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the procedure or the punishment. We've already been there. What I want you to do is hone in on, focus in on his last statement. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Wow. Twenty years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar was blown away. Just blown away. He had seen something with a God that he had never seen before with any of his astral deities, with any of his idols. He was blown away by the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for doing what he thought was the impossible. His gods couldn't do it. And that was revealing his mysterious dream. 20 years earlier, he's he's praising God. He's bowing and worshiping. And it looks like he's trying to worship Daniel. And he's saying all these amazing things. And yet here he questions this same God's power. And not only does he question his power, he mocks him. There is a mocking tone to his words. Who is going to deliver you from my hand, guys? 
again, at first glance, I thought, what a dummy. Whenever I think that there's a dummy in the room, about 38 seconds later, I, I remember the number one dummy in the room. It's the same person. No, it's me. You ever you start to get like that when you grow in your faith. You know, we tend to have a critical spirit at times, and you think, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe what they're doing and all that. What a dummy! Wow!" And then you get, a, you know, you get a little, you become a little more humble throughout the years, and you know, Christ is chipping away and exposing and revealing, and you're saying, you know, "What a dummy! Why he's just like me?" It's, you know, uh, comforting to know that there's a lot of dummies out there. You're not the only dummy. The scary part is when you think everyone else is a dummy and you don't think you're a dummy. That's when you're in big trouble. And that was me for probably the first 10 years of my faith. Just arrogant and prideful and... Well, the chief dummy's talking to you right now. And I thought, what a dummy! But then I realized, I do the same thing! I do the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar here! I question God's power all the time! Especially when things aren't going well or in the direction that I want them to. Can I get an amen? Do you not question his power when things are not going well? Can you do something about this? No. When I first got saved, I was literally blown away by God's power. I was. I just couldn't believe that he could save a person like me. I just... I kept telling myself, it's too good to be true. And then those around me who'd been walking in the faith longer would say, you're right, it is. That's the gospel. I was just captivated by his power the first few years of my faith in salvation because I just, I couldn't get my mind around it. It's like, wow, you say, I know what I am. I know what I was about. I know what I still wrestle with. And you, why would you, you have the power to make me a new person? I mean, it was so immediate for me. It was like frightening. I just went from like, duh, to like, oh, worshiping. I just make any sense. Blown away by his power, I was utterly captivated by it. But about 15 years later, I find myself doubting and questioning his power from time to time. It was 20 years for Nebuchadnezzar. It's only been about 15 for me. I find myself frequently acting and behaving like Nebuchadnezzar, saying to myself, I don't think that you can deliver me because I don't believe you're powerful enough. Oh, I I guess you saved me, but you can't do anything about this small thing now? I act like Nebuchadnezzar all the time. Let me give you the good news. The good news is, is that our perspective changes nothing. Yeah? That's the best news ever. Because God's power and who He is isn't based on my pathetic feelings or my circumstances. Our perspective changes nothing. God is immutable. Theological term meaning unchanging. God is omnipotent. Theological term for all power, whether I believe it or not. Whether I acknowledge it or not. 
I'm an ant. Now I'm going to give you five verses to write down. Okay? Be ready. You don't have, you know, just don't write out verbatim what I say. Just write the verse. And I think that you can go to these verses. And of course, we need to go to Scripture whenever we're wrestling with things, but you can go to these particular verses when you have doubts about God's power, when you slide into or slip into Nebuchadnezzar mode, which is probably about five times a week. So you're probably going to be in the Word a lot. And that's okay. Are you ready? Okay. When you doubt God's power to save. You ever doubted that? Maybe you don't go around doubting His power to save you. You're fine with that. But you're looking at these people around you going, they are toast. I've been praying for so-and-so for so long, still doing the same thing. Nothing's changing there. Don't think you have the power to do it. We feel like that at times, don't we? Okay, when you doubt God's power to save, you just got to fly right over to Luke 18, verses 24 through 26. Remember this text, the rich young ruler? Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've just tried to imagine squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle. I can't even get a thread through it. This is how difficult it would be. And I think this parallels with every human being. It's not just those who have a ton of money. It's about someone getting themselves saved. But it's especially hard for those who have a lot of money because money tends to block them from any need of God or any of that. It would be more difficult for a camel to transfer through the eye of a needle than for someone to enter the kingdom of God. And then those who were listening were like, whoa, this is horrible. They asked a question, then who can be saved? Okay, if, if, if people can't do this on their own, and Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that's the go-to verse. When you think that God does not have the power to save that neighbor, to save that loved one, to save that son or daughter, to save that boss, to save whoever it is, that teacher that's trying to corrupt you. What is impossible with man, meaning man can't save himself. See, I think that's why we get discouraged. We're looking at a person and we want them to do something. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to fall on your knees and pray this prayer. Remember when I did that to you for like 10 years? I was trying to save this guy. He didn't get saved. Just pray this prayer after me, Carl. Maybe he'll shut up, Lord. I think that's why we get defeated and discouraged because we want that person to save themselves in in some kind of way. Well, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this and, and then I'll feel good about myself. What is impossible with man is possible with God. When it comes to the salvation of people, it is literally impossible for people to save themselves. Don't get discouraged when you see people that they're not doing what you think they should be doing. You have a God who works behind the scenes. 
And he is the one who saves, bottom line. And what is impossible to us is not impossible for him. I've seen God, and I think I'm a living example of it, him just saved the worst of the worst. I guarantee there were people praying for me for a long time. That guy is a disaster. Let's pray for him. Now, I, we should look at it like this. If, if God can save me, if, you know, Gene, say to yourself, if God can save me, then it's clear that he can save anyone. So that was Luke 18, 24 through 26. Number two, when you doubt God's power to sanctify, to make you like Jesus, right? That's the wrestling match of our life. That's the struggle. That's what Paul was crying out about, wretched man. When you doubt God's power to sanctify and make you like Jesus, Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this. Not, I, I think it's true. I think it's a possibility. I am sure means I am convinced that it is truth. Paul says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's not, I think I'm going to become like Jesus throughout my life and then glory in the future. It, it's going to happen. Because I doubt this all the time. I, why do I go back? To this? Why do I do this, Lord? I get so defeated. I cry out, wretched man that I am. Trouble is, I forget the rest of the verse. It, deliverance comes through Jesus. Sanctification comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us that God began that good work. He will carry it to fruition. He will accomplish His salvific purposes for you. He will bring you from infancy in the faith to glory in the faith. And then one day, you're not going to live by faith at all, but by sight. He's going to do it. So when you doubt that he has the power to make you like Christ and to change you and transform you, you just go to Philippians 1.6. Number three, when you doubt God's power to protect. When you doubt God's power to protect. Psalm 138, verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble... You preserve my life. He's speaking of the Lord. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. There are way too many fearful Christians in the church today. It's unreal. We have... <laughs> Our God protects His children. Ultimately, He protects the salvation and our future inheritance. He may choose not to protect your body at some point in this life and bring you unto Himself. But ultimately, He protects your soul. Nothing has access to that. But I am convinced that even throughout this life, there are so many things that probably should have happened to me that haven't. Let's not pretend that God doesn't protect us physically in this life. I think there are many things that come along that threaten to extinguish our life and take us out before God's purposes are fulfilled and God's like, nope, you're going to be there as long as I have you there. Car crashes and things like this. 
You're not going to go to be with Jesus before your time to go to be with Jesus. He does protect us physically. I believe He surrounds our homes with angels. I believe we are in the invisible realm constantly being threatened and under attack. And I think He's got legions of angels down here protecting His people. He does protect us physically. He does, most of all, He protects us spiritually. For when you doubt God's power to provide, when you doubt God's power to provide, you just pick up your Bible and you flip over to Matthew 6, 25 through 26. Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Speaking of clothes, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't do what we do. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? <laughs> There's no such thing as a starving blue jay. There's always seeds and worms and things to pick up. Or if you live at my house, cat food from the bowl outside. Drive me crazy. You know, flying and hovering over the bowl, and the cat's like, What's up, dude? There's no such. Birds don't get hungry. Birds get hungry, but they don't starve. And how much more will he provide for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? His own sons and daughters. And this is something we wrestle with at times. I just don't know if he, he's going to provide or make ends meet. I just don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know. I, we doubt. We question. See, we're so much more like Nebuchadnezzar in just different ways. And fifth, when you doubt God's power to heal. Psalm 107, verses 19 through 20. Speaking of the Israelites, they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Friends, we have a God who can heal and still heals people. So, when you doubt His power to heal you from your illness, don't doubt His power to heal you from your illness. Go to Psalm 107. Does it guarantee He'll heal you? No, His purpose might be not to heal you, but it doesn't mean He can't heal you. When you're standing in the hospital, at that hospital bed with that person who's sick or who's dying, believe that God can heal them and boldly approach the throne and ask Him to do it. He may just do it. He can do it. So we've covered the power to save, the power to sanctify, the power to protect, the power to provide, and the power to heal. And there are a zillion more verses that speak to these things. 
But I think those are the top five, at least that I wrestle with. I doubt His power in every one of those areas. And those verses say, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is not the only fool. You are, my son. My bad, Dad. Now, I would say that Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn a hard lesson. It is never wise to put the Creator, the Master of the universe, the Lord God, to the test in this way. Because that's essentially what he's doing. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? He is testing their God. His, his problem isn't with them. It's with their God. That's where the weirdness is. And it is never wise to put the Lord God to the test in this way because He might just oblige you and then display a tiny inkling, a tiny fraction of His power which could result in your destruction. Poof. Or if He chooses to be merciful in your total and absolute humiliation. I'll take that. And that is going to play out in the verses to come. We are going to see, ultimately, his humiliation. But we've got to wait to get there. Now, Jesus, when he was in the wilderness being tested, being tempted in the various ways for 40 days, 40 nights, he warned the devil about this very thing, did he not? Because the devil kept coming to him and testing him. Essentially, when you test Jesus, you're testing God. Because Jesus is God, right? Jesus said this. He warned even the devil, that ancient serpent. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to what? The test. Now let's look at, and like I said, we'll get to that. Now let's look at how Daniel's buddies responded to the king's warning in verses 16 through 18. Ah, oh, this is great. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> he said to them, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true? They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> what? I'd be like, oh, let me go deliberate. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not, that we will not, <laughs> that we will not Serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So when I first read verse 16, I thought they were being like condescending or disrespectful, right? Because it sounds like, oh, king, we have no reason to give you an answer in this. It looks like that at first glance. Maybe that's because of the way the English breaks down the Aramaic or Hebrew translation. But that is not the case. They were not being disrespectful. They were not mocking him back in any sort of way. 
That first part of 16 is their way of saying we do not need to talk through the situation with one another. We do not need to deliberate. We do not need to have a conversation with you or with one another. Our minds are made up. That's the way to interpret what they said there. That's what they meant. It looks like they were being disrespectful, but they weren't. They were just saying, we already know what we're going to tell you. Not like, hey, Meshach, let's go over here and talk about this. We're about to die. Verse 17, they told the king that the God whom they serve, proof that we don't serve your gods, right? What is this? You don't serve my gods? What are they saying? The God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your hand? Now their words show they recognized that God's authority was greater than the authority claimed by Nebuchadnezzar. They might have been employed by Nebuchadnezzar, but they served Yahweh, the God whom we serve. For some reason, Christians today don't think that they can serve their God and serve in public office or any of that stuff because they'd be serving another God. Well, these guys are showing us that you can have all sorts of different kinds of jobs, whether it be a politician or something like that, and you can totally serve your God there. Now, they might come down on you for that. They certainly did. What's her name back east when she wouldn't issue certificates to those gay couples who were trying to get married? Was it Kim Davis? She was a clerk. You can work in these fields and serve your God. In fact, I think John Calvin said it, you know, that all work is to be done unto the Lord in that sense, that we work in all these various jobs for him. We serve him alone in whatever it is we're doing. So they said, you know, the God whom we serve, he can deliver us out of your hand. This just shows that they knew that their God was the one who had ultimate authority and power, not Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18 is is just totally remarkable. They reckoned that the God whom they serve might not, might choose not to deliver them from the king's hand and fiery furnace, right? Look at that, the beginning of verse 18. But if not, he doesn't do it. They had no guarantee from God that He would do this for them. They did not have a looking glass into the future. Okay, He's going to deliver us. Let's take a stand. By faith, they believed He could deliver them. Because they believed He is all-powerful. Because they believed He is sovereign. Because they believe He is merciful. Remember at the beginning of the book where they prayed for His mercy? Reveal this dream to us. Be merciful. You boil down what they've told the king here. If the God whom we serve chooses not to deliver us, if we die in the fire, know that we were unwilling to disobey and dishonor Him by complying with your order. What a testimony! Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not value their own well-being. They did not value their own lives above God Himself, above His glory. If they had, they would have bowed. They were like the Apostle Paul who wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.8 They were like Job who wrote, The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Job 1.21 As we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ through the power of God's Word applied by the Holy Spirit, an either way attitude will begin to develop in us. The mark of a maturing believer is not just that he believes in Jesus, not just that he believes in God's promises, but that he or she joyfully accepts every outcome and seeks to glorify God for every outcome. Do I need to repeat that? The mark of a maturing believer is not just that he believes in Jesus Christ, or that he believes in the promises of God, but that he or she joyfully accepts every outcome, okay, good, bad, ugly, and seeks to glorify God for every outcome. A maturing believer says, if God delivers me, blessed be His name. If God does not deliver me, forget about God. No, blessed be His name. We sing that song on occasion. That is one of the marks of a maturing believer. That you are willing to bless and praise and glorify God no matter what the outcome of your situation is. You may pray fervently for a change in direction, for something to happen, for healing or whatever. But the maturing believer doesn't give up when God does not deliver the way that they want Him to. The mature believer says, blessed be your name. And that is the total attitude of these men. Either way. Either way. I'm sure that they were leaning a little more heavy towards not, you know, dying in the fire. I'm sure that just part of them said that'd be much better. But either way. Either way. The maturing growing believer who's being sanctified by the Word of God, transformed by the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, they are also concerned about leaving a legacy that speaks to God's glory and worthiness. Daniel's buddies modeled this right here. They wanted Nebuchadnezzar and all of Babylon because think about the stage they were on here. What a, this is the ultimate opportunity to bear testimony to the worthiness and glory of your God. To either completely blow it in front of multitudes or to exalt Him, to raise Him up, to testify to His glory and worthiness, right? They, this was the ultimate stage for them to do that. This was bigger than any concert. They wanted Nebuchadnezzar and all of Babylon to know that the God whom they serve is so glorious that He is worth living for and worth dying for. And as I studied this passage, I kept asking myself, do I have this kind of firm faith?
Am I like them? All of us, I think, would say, yes, we are. But we're not in that moment, are we? I'm not standing next to a fiery furnace. I don't have a sword on the back of my neck. I just kept asking myself, do I have this kind of faith? What would I do if I were in their sandals? The truth is, our faith, your faith, that precious gift of the Holy Spirit, our faith is only as strong as the foundation on which we stand. In other words, what we stand on or what we are standing on will determine the strength of our faith. What do you think we've been singing about all morning? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, firm foundation. And I will not be shaken. I know I'm singing out of key, but who cares? What we stand on will determine the strength of our faith. If we stand on Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, during times, I would say at all times, but especially during times of testing, our faith will be strong and firm. Our faith will be unshakable if we're standing on the rock of our salvation. You see, these men were looking forward to Christ and trying to stand on that stone. He hasn't come yet, but He's coming. Give me a corner. Move over. I need a little room on this stone. You got room. All right, I'll hold you. By faith, they were standing on the stone that is going to come and destroy all the kingdoms of the world and turn into a mighty mountain and then... We've already looked at the vision that these men believed in, which had to do with Jesus. If we stand on Christ, who is the chief cornerstone during times of testing, our faith will be strong and firm, unshakable. But if we stand on someone or something other than Christ, our faith will be weak and feeble. It is possible to be a genuine believer with the Holy Spirit and to stand on something flimsy. Don't just think that because you're a Christian, you're always standing on Christ. Sometimes you've got to look to see where your feet are. I'm standing on my own ability. I'm standing on my own power. I'm standing on the assurance of what that person has done, and I'm hoping they follow through. I'm standing on this. I'm standing on that. We've got all kinds of stepping stones. No, you've got to look down and see where your feet are. And if you are standing on Christ, 
If you are standing on His teachings, you are the wise man or woman who builds your home on a rock, on a solid foundation, on granite. But if you are not standing on Christ, you are like the foolish man who is building his house on top of sand. And when the rain and when the wind and when the storm and all that stuff blows, that place comes crashing down because it's not on the firm foundation. Jesus told that parable. Christ is the solid ground. Christ is the bedrock. Christ is our anchor. And my prayer is that the Lord would continue to grow and strengthen our faith as we continue to stand on and in Him, our mighty fortress that we would display firm faith during times of testing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And I'm telling you, if we're standing on Christ, we can do it. Also that we would leave behind a legacy that speaks to God's glory and God's worthiness that those who knew us would come to the realization that the God whom we served is so glorious, so glorious that He is worth living for and that He is worth dying for. Amen.